There's supposed to be a power in worship, and there is, unless worship is made commonplace. And we sniff at it and don't really care what it's like or whether we are participating in it or not. When we look at Isaiah chapter 6 that Austin read a moment ago, we see something happens in the presence of God. And here was a man who Isaiah who sees in the temple. He sees this seraphim, this holy being, this image of God, as it were. And his holiness was filling all the earth. And this astounding image that he saw with the, the doorpost shaking and the whole place filling with smoke. And, and it really did something to Isaiah. And he said as he saw this, oh, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And as we draw some analogies and some truth from that on what happens when someone realizes they are in the presence of the living God, we see that worship becomes a window through which we see God. We are here singing to one another and, and praising God and talking about these holy precepts. We are being taught from God's holy and living word. And all these things have something to do with the nature of God, his name, his his commandments, his desires, his very promises and all the goodness of God and the severity of God rolled into one. And in worship, we draw strength from that and we see who God is as we assemble and praise him and worship him. But in worship is also a mirror in which we see ourselves. And singing about these things and studying these holy words from Scripture, we realize that we too are people of unclean lips. And that we do have many opportunities to fail and say the wrong thing and to have a hateful attitude or have bitterness or have something in our, in our tongue or in our life. Worship is also a network in which we reach one another. And as we talk to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we connect. There's some reason for being here, not just because God commands it and God wants our praise and we do praise him, but because we need each other and we draw strength from each other and from our assembly together. And worship is also then a lifeline through which people are reached for God. The whole purpose of God's will being handed to mankind is for restoration. That's the story of the scriptures, the story of redemption. And so our part in that is to assemble, praise God, learn from God, reach each other. And then as 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13 and 14 along in there give us the idea that those who are brought into the assembly, their heart is touched. They fall on their knees and they praise God and they realize there's something there for them. So in worship, God is glorified and the sinner is purified. The church is edified and built up and the visitor is evangelized. So worship is my reverence to God, my honor paid to him who is worthy, who is worthy to receive blessings and honor and glory throughout all the earth. And it's something that I give to God in worship that I give no other place. I give it to him down on the riverbank and under a sycamore tree in the springtime and all the aromas there. A few of my favorite things, starlight and dewdrops and and uh, things like that. And I praise him and we praise him all the time. And yet in worship together, there's a specialness there. And I give something solely meant for God and to him only. But I also get something from worship that I don't get any other place. Down under the sycamore tree gives me something. It gives me a thrill. Uh, it's not the same as when my brothers sigh. And I can feel the vibration of his chords on the back of the pew. Something about speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that it's not like anything else. And so there's a power there. But what about the other 167 hours during the week? Or for some, the other 165 hours during the week? What about that? 
How, do, how does worship relate to my life? And that's a big question that sometimes we don't really make the connection. Steve made the connection a moment ago in his prayer. I'm going to have to not let you pray before I preach because you pray up all the good stuff before I can talk. But that's the, a godly man thinking about godly themes puts this sort of thing together. And that's what we're dealing with is what do you do with the rest of your time? How are we connected to God then? Is this our only connection is when we're in the in-church assembly? And so how does worship relate to my life? In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah challenged the people and he said, listen, you're not you're not living consistent with what you say you believe. Does that sound familiar? How easy is it to fall into that? Listen to what he says here, Isaiah, in chapter one, verse 11, beginning. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? What do you come to church for? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure the iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are... And here he gives the reason why. You come to church, you hypocrites, he's saying. I cannot bear the, the iniquity. I cannot endure the iniquity and the solemn assembly. You're tainting your assembly with your lifestyle. So he says, your hands are covered with blood. That's why I'm not going to listen. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. So see, even as far back as the days of Isaiah in the Old Testament in the storyline of Israel, God was saying, I want you to live the rest of the week the same way you live on the Sabbath. And when you bring your sacrifices, I want you to bring them out of a pure heart, not out of necessity, not out of just getting the job done. I've got an old sermon outline or two from the 70s where I have it written down my misperception of trying to explain how literalistic and legalistic the old law of Moses was. And I said things like, as long as you've got the sacrifice on the slab, as long as you poured the salt and did all this, you got it. You passed the test because you did what God required. Well, that's not really the whole picture because behind all that, God was saying, yeah, put the blood down there, slay the lamb, pour out his blood, but I want your heart to be consistent with that. So James chapter 1 and verse 27 we're familiar with. Visit the fatherless. This is pure religion. This is pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this. Visit the fatherless and the widows and keep yourselves unspotted from the world. So now it turns out we cannot separate our lives from our worship. Jesus said as he talked to the devil there in Matthew chapter 4 in the temptation of the desert. When Satan offered all these kingdoms and fall down and worship me. And, and Jesus said, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shalt thou serve. Many times in the New Testament, worship and service are used interchangeably. They're two sides of the same coin that we worship God. We offer him our special sacrifices of song and praise and gathering together and, and all of that. But we also serve him in Romans 12, verse one and two. There's this some versions translate this as spiritual service of worship that we are dedicated to him as a living sacrifice. So then when we understand that concept, the pocketbook and the, the tools and everything else that we have and all that we are belongs to God. It all comes in the same package. So it's not just a matter of how much and how many assemblies do we attend. 
in worship to God and whether we got it right when we did that, but what else is going on in our lives and in our heart. In Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah puts it this way, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word saying, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. So again, look at the setup. You stand in the gate, stand at the front door of the church and you tell them when they come to worship, think about this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Talking about the the land promise of the land of Canaan. Do not trust in deceptive words saying this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, we're in the church building. Everything's going to be okay. Everything else we do doesn't matter. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, and swear falsely? And offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Do you think coming to church once a week and taking the communion gives you a license, a sale of indulgences, as it were, to go out and live like you used to live? Um, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, even I, even I have seen it, declares the Lord. So, again, the idea is a daily practice of our profession is considered by God to be directly related to our in-church assembly, that we have pure hands and and pure hearts and clean hands and that sort of thing. Listen to what Amos said in Amos 8, verse 5 and 6. The People were literally pounding on their watches during the assembly, it seems. They were saying, when when is church going to be over so we can get back to our fleshly business? Listen to how he describes it. They were saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market? Well, what's wrong with that? Nothing except they were cheating in their businesses. We want to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. We don't sell uh, damaged goods and charge a high price for it. When will church be over so we can go sin again? That is, their lives were not consistent with their worship. And if this is hard to hear, it's because we all can immediately do a reality check and realize that during that other 160 some odd hours in the week, the voices that pound us constantly are the voices of the value systems of this world and of the flesh and of man's ways of doing things. And we constantly see and hear and experience and rub shoulders with that until the word of God is squeezed out. And it's not easy. It's a difficult challenge. This is harder than chemistry, calculus. It's harder than two-a-days in football practice. It's harder than whatever you're going to try to do is to shoulder yourself with the responsibility of trying to say, I'm going to serve the living God with all that I have. In Hebrews 10 and verse 24, we're taught there concerning not forsaking the assembly, but in all of that, the idea is that when we come together, we provoke one another or encourage one another to love and good works. That translates out into life. Hebrews 13, verse 14, 15, and 16. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of the lips, giving, that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, 
For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So there it is again. We praise the fruit of the lips, singing praise to God. We speak to one another. We encourage one another and we share. So it's all mixed in together. Yes, we worship. Yes, we start worship. We do worship. We stop worship. We're done worshiping. We're driving home, turning on the radios, not an act of worship. And yet, as a dedicated Christian, my whole life is dedicated to him. It's through Jesus Christ that we approach God in worship. It's through life that we remember to do good and share. So when we live better, we worship better. And when we worship better, we live better. Listen to Psalm 50 and verse 23 as he puts this together. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his life aright, I shall show the salvation of God. And notice again how God desires our worship. He wants to see us. He wants us on bended knee. He wants us to be careful not to have the dancing foot on Saturday night and the praying knee on Sunday morning and try to have an inconsistent life, but rather to get it right. Order his life aright. So what are my thoughts supposed to be during the week? Colossians 3, Paul writes to the church in Colossae, and he, he writes something about a reminder here of whose we are and what our business is supposed to be all about. <clears throat> Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, that you're Christians. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, was revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked, but that was then, this is now. So when you were living in them, that's the way you acted, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside your old self with its evil practices and put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So the idea is I need to spend some time with my God outside the assembly and try to stay connected and to think about God as the, as the morning sun rises. As one fellow said, I used, to, I used to wake up and say, Good morning, Lord. And now that I'm old and sore and sick, I wake up and say, Good Lord, it's morning. But the idea is that to start the day, do we not even pause long enough to say, Thank you, Lord, for sparing me? And, and as the day goes on, do we not sing once in a while? Though I through the valley of shadow or mountain, or trouble, sea. And we just keep singing and thinking about how the Lord has been mindful of me. And then as the shades of another evening gather about us, and the stars come out, do we not even think about Abraham and God putting his arm around him, as it were, and taking him outside and say, let me show you, Abraham, can you count those? My promises, your descendants are going to be numberless like that, and you can count on me. And as we think about the watch in the night, that God is with us. Sometimes we understand we are facing a kind of a practical atheism. That is, for we believe in God, but we live as though there was no God. We believe that we live as though He's not really there. Someone has well said that people have three lives. They have a public life, a private life, and a secret life. 
But with God, we only have one. And that's the one we have, the one before God. In Joshua chapter 24, we have a famous passage there where Joshua challenges the people and he says, you can serve the gods of the Amorites or the gods of your fathers which were beyond the river or whatever, but I'm going to serve for me and my house. We're going to serve the living God. And then we don't really notice the people's response. And they said, we'll serve the living God too. Far be it from us to forsake God. And then Joshua said, you cannot serve God. Pow, right in the kisser. What kind of reply was that? You cannot serve God because He is a holy God. And He will pay you back for your sins. He'll hold you accountable. And they said, well, no, we'll serve Him anyway. We'll put away the foreign gods. We won't do that. And then Joshua said, okay, you're, then, you're witnesses against yourselves. And they said, we're witnesses. We're going to do it. He said, okay, I'll make a covenant with you that you're going to put away these foreign gods and you're going to purify yourselves and you're going to serve God only. Now, how hard is that? How hard, how hard is that? To get it right, to stay focused, and to shut out those noises in the world around us and that constant barrage of go ahead, punk, make my day, or you're going to be sorry for that, or if I get within 10 feet of you, you'll be a half-term president, or whatever the threats are, these, this thing about... I'm taking it into my own hands. See, our hearts slip because they're so filled with the venom of this world. And so it's not easy. And, and I'm not trying to say it's easy. I'm putting a burden on all of us right here from the Scriptures. How hard is it to get it right and to, to live for God? In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, Isaiah says we need to reason this thing out. Even though your sins are as scarlet, just blood red, and you are guilty, they shall be white as snow, and they can be made pure. And throughout the Scriptures, then, we read how that sacrifice of the Lamb of God can cleanse our sins, cleanse our souls. And we can make a commitment to Him. And when we slip and fall, we can come back. We can make it right. We can repent. We don't have to be baptized all over again. We just straighten up and fly right. In fact, speaking of that, Isaiah says, If you will wait upon the Lord, if you'll be patient, and if you'll wait upon the Lord and, and listen for Him and listen to Him and trust and obey Him, you can mount up with wings like eagles. You can fly high. You can, you can start your Christian life and just be as high as a kite. Just wonder, everything is wonderful. I'm a Christian. I'm saved. But then as life goes on and the burdens come and the challenges of life come and a few sins happen here and there and, and all these things start weighing you down, you can just keep on running and you won't grow weary. You can just keep on running. But then after the run slows down to where you're just... Glad you can still walk. You can walk and not faint. You can just keep right on going. Those that wait upon the Lord. Right now is a good opportunity as we're gathered together. That if you have a spiritual need in your life and you love the Lord and you want to be right with Him, you can be saved from your sins by being baptized into Christ this morning. And if as a Christian you need to confess your faults one to another that you may be healed from spiritual sin and from other things, you could let that be known this morning. Come all we that love the Lord and let our joys be known, the joys in the Lord. Will you come this morning as we stand and as we sing if you have a spiritual need?